Hi, my name's Megan. For those of you that don't know me, welcome. I'll be reading the Bible this morning from Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 33. So please follow along in your Bibles on your devices or it should be up behind me. Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 12. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish it. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple." Well, good morning, everybody. It's really great to be here with you in the building together, and I'm sure some people are also joining us online. Uh, my name is Isaac. I'm an assistant minister here at our church, uh, and I've only kind of just realised that this is the last time that I'll be speaking with you from God's Word on a Sunday morning. 
which is a lot to process. Um, I'll certainly miss you guys. Um, enough of that. I need to go into something fun. Uh, I can process that later. Uh, let's start with a question that will involve some engagement, some chatting with people next to you. Uh, just like we normally start off a youth talk, here's the question for today. What's the funniest excuse you've ever heard for not showing up to an event? What's the funniest excuse you've ever heard for not showing up to an event? Have a chat with the person next to you, and I'd love to hear a couple of funny examples. Go for it. Oh, and youth can share, what's the funniest reason why you didn't go to school, or you've heard people didn't go to school? Okay, that's all you've got. Sorry. <laughs> I'd love to hear, what's the funniest reason someone gave for not going to an event? Cut it, I'm cutting you off. That's enough. Enough chatter. What's the funniest reason why somebody didn't show up to an event? Yes, Oscar. It was... With no... The day had no learning, that's why I didn't go to school. <laughs> you could just see it. Yeah, it could. Will? <laughs> too busy gaming. It's honest. I remember we had a junior boy discussion one night at youth where people were very honest and they said that they were very sick that week and didn't go to school. So at least that one's a bit more honest in a way. Any other funny reasons? I've heard people who've said, uh, I had to wash my hair or, or water my plants. Yep. Um, my grandmother didn't go to an event because someone, had, someone would have to sweep the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot to deal with. <laughs> That's good. Thanks, Tom. Uh, at the back there, is there a hand? All good if not. Had to clean her room. That doesn't really make sense, does it? <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Uh, what are the great three excuses in this passage? Did you notice them? I've got to go look at my grass. I just bought some grass, my field. I better go look at it. Even though you kind of assume the person's already seen the field before they bought it, right? Got to go look at my field. Uh, what's the second one? I've got to go look at my oxen and hang out with my oxen. I just bought some ox. Very relatable, I'm sure. Uh, and then the last one, I just got married. No, no other reason. I just got married. <laughs> I'm busy. Sorry. They're great excuses, aren't they? Uh, but today we're asking a big question, and I hope we don't have excuses, but there are lots of reasons, right, about why we might believe in Jesus and why we might not believe in Jesus. Uh, now, if you have joined our series so far, uh, you would have seen these past two weeks, we've been looking at how God is true and He's also good. And maybe you've gone along for the ride and you've been able to say, yeah, God is true. He's a real, he's really in existence and he's actually good as well. But that's not the same as believing in him. I've walked alongside a lot of friends of mine who've come to see that the Bible is true, that, you know, it's, it's historically reliable, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. They've been convinced that it's all history and that God is good 
that he's favorable, favorable to them, but it's a whole extra step to actually believe and depend on this God. So let's look at what I mean when I, when I mention these words like belief or trusting or following Jesus today. This is what I mean. Trust is not wishful thinking or blind. Trust is carefully considered and it's based on the evidence. Trust is inevitable. We're all going to trust in something or somebody. Trust is more than just assent. So assent is just believing that something exists. So even the demons, we're told, they believe that God exists. So trust today is more than just believing he exists. Trust is eternally focused. It is accepting God's invite. Trust is costly and trust is daily. Now, we're not functional atheists like we just decide that God is real and then forget about him. Every day we trust and depend on him. And I'm really glad today as I speak to you about this topic that it's not up to me to convince you to believe in Jesus. And for many of us here, you already do believe in him, depend on him. Maybe for others here today, you're still trying to figure it out. Or maybe you're wavering in your faith. But for all of us here, I'm so glad that it's God alone who does this work in changing us. He does it as we gather around his word. See, the Bible is self-authenticating, which is just the most beautiful thing. Meaning that as we spend time in God's word, it's his word which convinces us by his Holy Spirit that it's true, that it's good. See, the main way people come to follow Jesus is simply looking at him and finding him compelling. So we don't believe in the Bible because someone told us to believe in it. We don't need an expert to come and tell us to believe in the Bible, right? We simply go to it and it is shown to be trustworthy to us. If we're really one of God's people, we will hear the voice of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and we'll follow him as his sheep. And knowing all of this, I'll be spending quite a bit of time in God's Word, in Luke chapter 14, simply walking through that chapter. So I'd love you to open up to Luke 14 on a device or in your Bibles. We'll look at the words of Jesus and how this part of Scripture speaks about belief or trusting in Him. So that's where we're heading to today. But as we open up Luke 14, you might be wondering, where are we up to in the Gospel? What's been going on? Where are we up to lately? See, in the chapters leading up to chapter 14, we've heard heaps about Jesus speaking about salvation and how it can be found in him, about how God is patient with us and delaying wrath so that we might believe in him. Jesus taught that God is building his kingdom, yet each of us need to strive onto the narrow path to believe in him. We're to walk humbly and become last in this life, so that in the life to come we might be glorified with Jesus. So this has all gone on. He's talked about this already. So in a similar way, the parable from verse 12 is given to teach us that we're to humbly follow Jesus, as this will bring us lasting reward. That's our first point for today. I think it'll come up on the screen there. It's worth believing in Jesus. Yes, we're to humbly follow Jesus, because that brings lasting reward See, Jesus, he finds himself eating at someone's home, and he begins teaching the host of the party how he is to think about inviting people to events. He says, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. Now, he's being provocative here to make a point, to shock us into realizing that 
The rewards in eternity far outstrip our rewards now. See, Jesus isn't saying, look, it's wrong if you have a meal with your family. He's not condemning that kind of event. But he wants us to be countercultural in how we invite, actually bring in outsiders, the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. And this parable, it tells us that actually following Jesus can be hard. Living humbly as he did, caring as he did, and serving others as he did will often be hard. People will uh, come into our homes and there'll be lots of needs they might have and they may not be able to repay us. But Jesus promises that this lifestyle is worth it eternally. See, it makes sense to follow Jesus in how he loved outcasts because of many reasons, but one is given in this passage, because of eternity. See, Jesus, he teaches us briefly here that God will reward all those who faithfully follow him particularly here, people who follow Jesus and how he loved outsiders. So it is worth following him when we remember his claims about eternity. Now, the vision of the end of of heaven with Jesus, it ought to motivate us to chase after that reward, more than the rewards you might get now. And actually, our, our actions, even how we invite to parties, that can reveal some of our thinking and our convictions here. So that's the first big reason I want to encourage us to believe in Jesus. He reveals to us what eternity looks like and that it's good to follow him now. Uh, Elsewhere, he'll say that it's essential that we follow him if we're to find eternal life. And at this point, I think it's helpful for us to pause for a moment and consider some of the other claims Jesus gives us for the rewards found in following him. He tells us we'll be with him forever in his presence He tells us he has authority to forgive sin. He brings us peace with God, a relationship with God again. And he's able to wipe away all suffering. So if we're convinced that God has prepared an eternal blessing for his children, then actually we don't need to chase after rewards from people now. We don't need to be focused on honour and exaltation now. We can gladly look like a fool by living like Jesus did. Associating with people who are often rejected. Spending time with those who aren't in a position to reward us or pay us back. What a challenge this teaching is, right? We're in a society intent on climbing that social ladder or chasing fame, chasing notoriety. What a humbling teaching this is. And I love the heart of Christ on display here as he speaks to us about chasing after those who cannot do a single thing to repay us in return. Wouldn't it be wonderful to grow in our hospitality in this way this year? Wouldn't that be a wonderful habit to to cultivate this year? It would really shape our love for people. Uh, There's a philosopher called James K.A. Smith, and he coined a really helpful term here. Uh, He calls it cultural liturgies. He basically explains that our human cultures teach us how to worship. In fact, what we do regularly as a habit, it teaches us how to love. Our repetitive practices, you know, might be shopping or binge-watching Netflix or putting up a Christmas tree every year. These habits, they're about pointing our hearts in a particular direction. Practices like this, they stir within us some kind of love, some kind of affection over time. 
wouldn't it be amazing to have this kind of an outlook to how we invite people to our events? We might savour God's grace even more, realising that we're actually outsiders as well and being brought into his banquet as well. Uh, See, we're no fool to trust God here. He gives us abundant reward now in our service of others as he grows us as he grows our character in the meantime, and as he prepares for us unimaginable joy in heaven. Now, so far we've considered how it's worth believing in Jesus because of the claims he makes to us about the rewards found in him. We began by thinking about what it might, sorry, about what we might gain in following Christ. And now let us consider that it is worth following Jesus simply because of who he is, the just and gracious host. Our second point for today See, I'm convinced that following Jesus is a good idea simply because of who he is. Um, I've already alluded to the fact that we're all believing in somebody or something already. See, trust is inevitable, and you can't opt out of this or just sit on the fence. Usually, we place trust in ourselves. I want to show us today that Jesus is unique in his character. He's altogether beautiful and supreme in our world, And devotion to him is solid ground. It makes perfect sense. We'll look at Jesus' character shown to us in this parable of the great banquet and also consider other aspects of his character which draw us into following him. We can see this in verse 14. I love, Jesus has just instructed them how to think about how to invite people to your party and now he's telling us about how God approaches the invite list. Now we see more clearly why Jesus began with this kind of teaching earlier. Precisely because that's how Jesus operates. See, we are the outsiders. We have been brought into the banquet of God, this feast in his presence, by his gracious gift. We were unclean. We've been made clean. We can be in his presence now. That's actually what's going on in this parable. See, Jesus, he's already reclining at the table. He's having a meal with them, and he's met with this statement. Someone exclaimed, how good it will be to eat the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, often Jewish uh, religious people would have thought that that feast in the kingdom of God was just for Jews. And Jesus debunks this idea with this parable. He shows great concern for outsiders, for people who are often rejected, and I think for the nations, for those far off. See, in this parable, it comes time for the man to remind his invited guests that the the event has come. Come along, come to the party. And the host represents God here, and he's inviting his people in. And after the invite goes goes out, it's a bit of a shock, right? There's confusion that no one wants to come. They come up with all these excuses, things that don't even really make sense. I've got some grass to look at. So rather than call off the party... The host flings open the doors and he lets everyone come on in. Verse 21, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the reason these people are singled out is because the Jewish people would have thought these people were unclean. They couldn't be in God's presence. It's scandalous that these are the people picked now to attend, to be part of God's people. And not only them... It says in verse 23, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in. Uh, I'm particularly quite glad about that, about to move to the country. I'm glad that God has a heart for the country people as well, down our country lanes as well. See, this is a picture of how far and wide God goes 
to find his people and bring them in. The invite goes to the ends of the earth. People far off are brought near in this incredible feast. And who else do you know that would actually fling open the doors of their house and invite all people into their home? And this is more than just for a meal and see you later. God welcomes people into relationship with him, even though we've all rejected him in horrifying ways. Consider the goodness of God, who gladly and readily seeks out the outsiders of our world. His heart is to fill the party to the brim. Through his servants, he seeks them out to bring them close. And in this parable, we find that belief in Jesus is more than just knowing the right information. The Jews of the time knew largely the right information. And this shapes how we approach serving God. See, we all, we're ministers of transformation, not information. See, to believe in Jesus is not an information quest. We seek, I seek, our whole staff team seeks to be ministers of transformation, not simply information. Our end goal is not that everyone here would recite all the right info. Our end goal is that people would be matured in Christ, come to grow in Him. See, belief is more than just simply assenting to His existence or knowing the right answers. It's about accepting the invite He gives you and gladly coming to His banquet. This parable shows us so clearly God's grace and His justice in one hit. And I think the character of Jesus is truly out of this world in that he combines traits which we don't normally see together in one person. I'll explain what I mean. Jesus is humble and yet completely confident. He's absolute competent, competence and yet without any kind of arrogance. Or reflect for a moment how tender Jesus is without being weak. His care shown to the outcasts here is, is amazing, but he's not a pushover. In his warm care, he remains faithful and true and powerful. He's still the writer of Revelation 7, full of power and with a sword and a thigh tat. This is Jesus. He has all of these characteristics all in one. He's bold without being harsh. There's never a word he spoke which he shouldn't have said and he needed to take back. No outbursts, no regrettable words. He's powerful while remaining sensitive. And he is totally, he's self-sufficient and yet completely trusts in his Father. Knowing all of this, we have an amazing God. We have an amazing God. His character is unlike anyone else. And I think this parable has a few clear applications for us. Let's not reject the invite that he gives us. Let's not be like those who came up with different reasons why they couldn't come. There is such a thing as a free lunch with God. Let's accept his invite. And don't just go on presuming that it's yours, like the many Jewish people might have done. And if you have accepted this invite, I rejoice with you. Let's today savour the grace that we're in, that we really were the unclean that have been made clean. And I hope you can see that it's worth believing in Jesus because of his character. So we've looked today at his claims about eternity, that they are full of reward for us if we trust in him. We've looked also that his character motivates us to trust in him. Let's finally look at how the cost of following Jesus actually highlights how much of a treasure he is. The cost of Jesus highlights the value which he is. Today, might we soberly consider the cost involved in following Jesus? 
Uh, I kind of love that today we have people of all ages amongst us because this is a question for us to consider at any point in our journey. We want to make an estimation. Should we follow Jesus? Is he worth it? And periodically do that as well. And in this very well-known passage, I think there's three, three key aspects of being his disciple. Number one, we're to love Jesus even more than our earthly family. You can see that in verse 26 if you're following along. Love Jesus more than your earthly family. Or verse 27, take up your cross and follow him. In verse 33, be willing to lay down everything, even your life, to go after him. See, this section, it kicks off in verse 26. With a deliberately like, unsettling way, you must hate father and mother and even hate your very life to be his disciple. <laughs> Oof, right? Like it's a massive instruction and it, it's to take our attention. What is this from Jesus? Is this some kind of hate speech from him? Is this like a contradiction to what he says in Matthew 5, to love your neighbor? Is he still the Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9? Well, no, he's speaking in hyperbole. He's exaggerating the point to wake us up, to show us that there will be many rivals warring for our supremacy in our hearts. There'll be many people wanting to take the throne of our hearts. But our love for Jesus must defeat every one of them. Jesus must be all. See, Matthew 10, verse 37, it provides us with a bit of a key to understand this passage in Luke 14. See, in Matthew chapter 10, it's very similar to what we read here, but a little bit different. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So I don't think Jesus is saying, go out and hate your family and hate your life and hate everyone in your, in your world. He's saying that he must be number one. And that... If your intensity and the quality of your love for Jesus is, is so big, well, by comparison, all other loves will seem like hate. That's what he's saying here. And he goes on in verse 33. Any of, you, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that word renounce is a bit of an odd one. It, it literally means bid farewell. So say adieu to yourself. <laughs> so anyone who cannot farewell themselves cannot be a disciple of Jesus. It's costly to say goodbye to yourself, to deny the ugliness of sin within us. But Jesus helps us to see that it's necessary. We need to deny ourselves to gain Christ. He uses two illustrations for that. He speaks of a building, uh, of builders who build this house, and also of kings who go to war. See, a wise builder, he won't just construct a tower unless they've made made sure at first that they have enough materials and time and money to, to complete it. See, a wise king also won't go to war unless he knows he's got the army to, to win, right? They're both total acts. You don't put in a half-baked attempt at either to just complete half of it. Otherwise, you end up with a ruin of a house that's no good for anything and your army gets totally defeated. See, you only commit to both of those things if you're certain you can complete it. That's what Jesus is saying. See, being a true disciple means you've estimated the cost of following him. And you're sure that you, you will complete uh, that and follow him to the end. Uh, Don Carson helps us recognize how radical these words of Jesus really are about carrying our cross. Now, uh, this is what Don helpfully tells us. He says, This expression of taking up your cross 
It's not an idiom which we refer to, you know, trivial uh, annoyances like an ingrown toenail or a toothache. No, in the first century, that sort of interpretation would have been impossible. In the first century, it was as culturally unthinkable to make jokes about crucifixion as it would be today to make jokes about Auschwitz. To take up your cross does not mean to move forward with courage, despite the fact you lost your job or your spouse. It means you're under a sentence of death. You are taking up the cross on your way to crucifixion. You've abandoned all hope in life, in this world, and then, only then, Jesus says, we are ready to follow him. This is scandalous, and it is the only way to follow Jesus, all in. See, the only way to complete the race with him as a disciple is we give up everything for him. Otherwise, we haven't really estimated the cost of following him, and we're only putting half of ourselves in. See, giving up our earthly lives now is actually a very small price for what we gain in return, in knowing Christ for all of eternity. But we need to come to this reality that following Jesus now might not actually make our lives easier. Please hear me correctly. There are profound joys in following Christ and knowing him. I'm convinced of this more than ever. Psalm 16, David, he also exclaims a similar thing. He says there's pleasures forevermore at his right hand. But if you would hear the message of Luke 14, we must admit there's a real sense in which your trouble may be just beginning when you follow Jesus, may be increasing. For one thing, it may not make your life with your family easier. Jesus says elsewhere that he's come to bring a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. A writer says, uh, J.C. Ryle, he says that a Christian must be willing to offend his family rather than his king. I've certainly felt that cost in my family. This departure, this uh, coldness that can come from simply following Christ. But it is a worth, uh, it is a cost that is worth it. And as we feel the pain in following Jesus, as we maybe lose friends or family, the cost we feel in following him actually points us to the fact that he's worth it, that he is the treasure of the universe, as another parable puts it. He is so worth it. Let's remember today that the first disciples, most of them died in following Jesus. They were so convinced of his worth and his treasure, they died. When we hear of people persecuted, and killed for standing firm to Jesus, may we remember what kind of treasure he is. When we personally feel the sting of following him, maybe in our friends or family, may we be encouraged to know the cost points to Jesus' supreme worth. I'm going to pray now that God will help us to persevere in him, to see that he is worth following. Uh, Please join me in prayer now. Our dear Father, we do ask that you would help us to consider the cost of following Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is honest with us. He doesn't just want us to blindly follow him. He wants us to estimate what it will be involved to follow him. And yet we recognize that you give us your spirit. You help us along in every step. It's not up to us. And while following Jesus often can be very hard and costly... Might that sacrifice actually show us the worth of Jesus? Might we grow to love him even more and be more and more devoted to him? Our Lord, we need your help in all of this. And we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Uh, I love that now we get a chance to watch a video of a dear sister of ours, Sally Bauer, as she shares her testimony, part of her testimony, and a bit of why she's convinced that following Jesus is totally worth it for her. So I think she'll really help uh, ground a lot of what we've spoken about this morning. Uh, so do enjoy this video. Thanks. I did not grow up in a Christian home, but I always knew of Jesus as my grandparents were Christian people. My grandmother always prayed for me, spoke about Jesus and took me to church on a few occasions. She gave me a King James Bible as a child, but at that stage I couldn't understand it. I was the oldest child of three, and as I grew up I really struggled to feel loved. As a teenager I went searching for that love in all the wrong places and it led to a very immoral life. I made very bad decisions and when one thing didn't fill the void that was within me, I went on to another and nothing satisfied. As a young adult, I was living with Brett and his parents, Frank and Shirley Bauer, who were both Christian people. Frank would have a cup of tea waiting for me every time I came home from work and would speak to me about life, about what I thought and about Jesus. He really treated me with care and with respect. I got to a point while living with them where my sin weighed very heavily upon me. The decisions I was making weren't good and the weight of my immorality sat on me. Frank and Shirley asked me if I wanted to do Simply Christianity, which is like Christianity Explored, and I said yes. When I started the course, we were only meant to read small parts of the Bible, but once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. I thought I knew a bit about what was in the Bible, but I discovered that I didn't actually know anything. I can only describe what happened over that time as God flicking the light switch in my brain to on. God's word opened up to me, the words in the Bible penetrated to the very core of who I was, and I changed. I saw my sin, my need of a saviour, and I saw what Jesus did on the cross for me, and I gave my life to Christ at the age of 27 on the 30th of July, 2001. After this, I was totally changed. I stopped my old behaviour patterns and started to try and live in ways that would be pleasing to God. I was given a love for Him and a love for other people that I had never experienced before. However, despite believing that I was forgiven, I still struggled with the guilt of my past life. We started going to Katoomba Easter Convention in 2003, and in 2012 I heard a sermon that changed my life again. It was a sermon by Brian Chapel on Romans 6-8, and in that sermon I came to realise how dead, gone and buried that old person was and how there was no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That is Romans 8 verse 1. I am crucified with Christ, and I understood that it wasn't the old me living anymore, but Christ living in me. I am a totally new creation. I came out of that Easter convention changed again and filled with an ecstatic gratitude. Romans 8 verse 1 is my favourite Bible verse, because with it I can extinguish every arrow the evil one throws at me. No matter what I face, I can always celebrate what Christ has done for me. Talking about the grace of Jesus and what he has done for me still causes me to weep. What a beautiful gift. Since that time, life here has been very difficult. There aren't many parts of my life that haven't been marked with suffering in some way, including robberies, accidents, betrayal, abuse, cancer and the death of people I love and care about. I've had so much trauma that I am numb now and I feel nothing at all. I pray regularly that the Lord will heal this within me, but I wait patiently. 
I've had moments where I've looked at my shattered life before me and I've said to God, how is any of this good? But I've learnt that the good we are promised is not good in this life, but that will be transformed to be more like Jesus. We lost my younger sister to a long battle with brain cancer just before Christmas. In the darkest moments, you can really see the difference that Jesus makes. The difference in suffering with Jesus is that I have someone I can call upon in the dark and I know that this life is not all there is. I suffer with him now and I'm not alone. Even as the darkness surrounds me, the light and beauty of Jesus shines even more brightly. Why is Jesus worth it? Jesus is worth it because he deals with my sin and the weight of it so completely that I bear it no more. He gives me his beautiful word and speaks to me through it regularly. I still can't put it down. He took me from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. He gives a wretch like me righteousness. He gives me life. He gives me hope and a future with him where there will be no more tears, death, suffering or pain. He promises that even when I don't understand it, he will work all things for my good. He is faithful and true. He is the air that I breathe, the solid ground on which I stand, and the only firm and solid thing in life that doesn't move. He is close to the brokenhearted and saves so to a crushed in spirit. I'm never alone and can talk to him in the darkest of valleys. His love is the most perfect, beautiful, whole and precious thing I have ever experienced. There is nothing on earth that compares to it. Where else can I go when he has the words of eternal life? Jesus is worth it. He's everything to me.